1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavoured Snapple near you. Hello, I'm Farah Sat, and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out!, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, the Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. (laughs)
2: The question is not who is susceptible to join a cult. The question is when in your life are you most susceptible to join a cult? And at 14, your brain is very plastic. Improv saved my life because improv is the opposite of a high control group. Let's not just bring hammers to knock the patriarchy down, let's bring bricks to build the world we do want to live in. Let's become the architects.
0: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers, business leaders, broadcasters grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Deborah Francis-White was born in Australia and adopted at birth. At 14, her parents became Jehovah's Witnesses, a Christian group in which women's roles were quite traditionally prescribed. But she grew up to pursue a career in comedy and to become one of the most famous voices of modern feminism. Her podcast, The Guilty Feminist, has had tens of millions of downloads since she launched it in 2015, combining comedy with serious discussion about enduring crises such as violence against women. Welcome to How I Found My Voice. Samira. It is a delight to be here. I want to go back to Australia. Uh, You were adopted at 10 days old. What do you remember of your early childhood and what your family was like?
2: I had a rather lovely childhood. We were raised in a beach town in Australia. And the thing is, from the time I could read, I always wanted to live in London. Always. Really? I was obsessed with it. Yeah, absolutely. I knew that I lived here. And I loved seasons, which I didn't have. (laughs) Uh, I I had I didn't have a coat when I was growing up not, not because we couldn't afford one Because there was no need for a coat No child I know had a coat We had a cardigan And that's what we wore when it got a bit chilly And that was winter And you're done
0: <laughs> For a lot of children who are adopted now They tend to know very young And it was no secret, was it?
2: No secret to me uh, My parents were brilliant about that they always told me until I could understand. So that word was in our house. It was always something very positive. like You're special because we specially wanted you. Some people have children accidentally. We had to fill out a form. And that was always something that was part of my identity, along with being left-handed. And uh, it didn't feel very different for me. And when I was old enough to understand and ask questions, I remember my mother saying, well, your, your birth mother must have loved you very much. To give you away because you were very beautiful and she wouldn't have wanted to. So it must have been very hard for her to give you away to somebody who could look after you better. And the only reason would have been she couldn't have looked after her, her, herself. That's you know,
0: really positive.
2: It was really mm. positive. And so I was felt loved by everyone. And I know that other people's experiences have not been like that. So I feel very lucky to have had that. I had this obsession, I wanted to live in London. And I also was the only performer in my family. Tell me about that then. How early were you performing? My first performance was my nursery school end-of-term show. I was a horse, uh, horse number three. <laughs> and I remember it very clearly. It must have only been three or four. I remember it. You, we had to rehearse this dance. We were all in, like, white onesies and with, like, reins, ra- black velvet reins with little jingly bells. And there were girl, little girls dancing behind us who were the riders. And we had to do this little prancy dance And I remember the audience. I remember the difference between the rehearsal and the audience. And I remember the audience clapping and cheering and laughing. And I remember all of the other little horses and riders dancing away. And I remember thinking, well, this audience is not done with this dance. And this audience is not done with me. So I danced on. And the audience clapped more. And I danced on. And the audience laughed more. And I danced on. And the teacher had to come and lead me away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I remember it so clearly. And it was always a sort of a, you know, running gag in my house that I wouldn't leave the stage. And nobody else was like that. My sister had, you know, was quite nervous of doing things like that. She played the piano very beautifully, but she didn't really like recitals. Uh, whereas I couldn't wait to get out and have sort of the jazz hands. And when I found my biological family, which was not long ago, uh, it was 2013, the first time I met them, at first I couldn't see those same things in common but it didn't take long to find out that firstly uh, my grandfather his mother was in musical and yeah Hetty was in musical and she had a double act with her sister and when Hetty and Lucy went solo Hetty became a ballet dancer and Lucy became a comedian and uh, I was obsessed when I was doing when I was finding my biological family and I was doing a show about it as I was finding them and the show was getting longer and longer and longer and people would come back to see what's happened next uh, because it was a sort of mystery show about finding them and then connecting with them and contacting them, going to see them and I did it that, as a sort of documented piece of theatre. As I was doing the show, I, be, I was just had this whole obsession that I had a sister living in Shoreditch and it turned out that that's where Lucy and Hetty had lived. They'd lived in Shoreditch and... I did not know that.
0: So you've got this real connection to London yeah. Musical.
2: And I've, if I did not have that documented, if I didn't have myself on video saying it, I wouldn't believe it. I'd think I've back-engineered that idea about Shoreditch. But I have myself on video before I found out saying I had this sister in Shoreditch and this, uh, this obsession about it. And actually, that's where Hetty and Lucy were. I've seen programmes with Lucy's name on them, I've seen a letter where she's turning down work she's getting too many gigs. And I'm like, yes, Lucy, yes. Mm. Um, yeah, she was okay, a solo there comedian. There you go, and
0: here you are, kind of carrying on that, that legacy. I'm interested in how things change in your family because it's about 14 that your parents become Jehovah's Witnesses? Mm. How does that change your life? Because it's exactly the age when a lot of teenagers might start experimenting with drink, with boys, with, with girls, all kinds of things. Yes, it changed my life
2: really dramatically because we became a family that had a different purpose. We started studying the Bible, and it's a very intense religion. It's a high-control group, basically, because everything you think is handed down to you from the Watchtower Society in America. It's all policed by the local body of elders. There really is no personal freedom of thought or action, and there is a a Stasi-like Quality to it that people are encouraged to turn each other in if they see each other so doing what something. What sorts
0: of things would that have meant for someone who was a teenager? Um,
2: well, if I was, to, for example, if I were to be seen talking to a boy who wasn't a witness boy, or I was with a witness boy who, but we were on our own, um, somebody else who was a witness might report us to the elders, and then the elders would call you in and say, You were seen talking to. Somebody who was not a witness, even having a coffee with a friend who and
0: the elders would be sort of the old people in running the local community of Jehovah's Witnesses.
2: Uh, men, um, let, let's 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 not get carried away with people there. Uh, Samira, it's uh, there's no need there's no need for that. It's uh, no, it's very patriarchal. It's all run by men. A woman has not made a single decision in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not one. Not not even when the Kingdom Hall is cleaned is decided by a woman. Nothing. Women cannot speak in the in the Kingdom Hall from the platform. Not they can't address the congregation. Uh we we got to do little plays. I'd been like a joiner, I suppose, at high school. I'd been in the school play and the school musical. You'd and volunteer
0: the, for all these things. Yeah, I was up. in
2: the I played the flute and I was in the orchestra and I loved everything like that. I loved I was always any any opportunity for performance and but also I was really academic later on when i left my results from school got me into oxford so it wasn't that i wasn't academic and i think i think that's what sometimes people think people who are susceptible to cults maybe aren't very academic but it isn't it isn't about that the question is not who is susceptible to join a cult the question is when in your life are you most susceptible to join a cult and at 14 your brain is very plastic
0: mm. so you were saying that you know you'd been a real joiner and you volunteered for all kinds of you know arts related things at school what effect did being in the Jehovah's Witnesses have on your performing, your kind of budding well, performing career? Well,
2: you, you, you weren't allowed to do anything, anything. So I had to stop absolutely everything and I wasn't allowed to go to university and instead I had to go and knock on doors full time. I and mean, then that doesn't pay anything, so you have to then work a couple of days a week in a shop to support yourself. The only outlet I had was, although I wasn't allowed to speak on the platform and address the congregation like the brothers were, Sisters were allowed to do these little plays. So there was one meeting a week that was called the Theocratic Ministry School and it was meant to be where you learnt to go and knock on the doors and demonstrate you could do that. Sisters were allowed to get up and do this little rehearsed play where you'd knock on the door and go... um, And then you'd pretend to be the householder. And I'd say, oh, my name's Deborah. And you'd say, oh, hello, my name's uh, Samira. And the congregation would be watching like it was a play. And then I'd say, oh, I wondered, Samira, if you'd ever thought about the future. Do you ever worry about the future? And then you would say, yes, I do worry about the future all the time. I'm really worried about, you know, the environment. And I'd say, well, did you know that the Bible has some answers to your questions? Now, you would always invite me in, in the little play, in real life that never
0: happened. Do you know, it's funny, I actually did spend a lot of time with Jehovah's Witnesses as a child. I wrote off um, after getting a leaflet when I was about 10 and I got a book back. A lot of books about the importance of not masturbating and, um, Mm. you know... Not getting cute. carried away, could one thing could lead to another. And <laughs> one or two women came round, knocked at the door, um, just came to see me because they had my address from having sent off for it. And it's really interesting because my mother was absolutely happy about them coming in to see me every week. And every Sunday we used to sit on the sofa together and have a chat.
2: Oh, you were not having a chat, Samira. You were having a Bible study. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, you were. You would have. You were. Those hours were counted. We would have a little report card, and we would write down your address and your name, and you were having a Bible study. I that's fascinating. I don't think I've ever met anyone who was having a Bible study who didn't become a witness. before. Yeah,
0: it's really interesting. My mother didn't mind the coming around. They did ask me to come with them one week, and I just said no. And to the meeting? Yeah, so I never went to a meeting. Kind of, they came to my house for several weeks. Um, several weeks? They yeah. gave up
2: very quickly. They were. Terrible. I don't know. Maybe it was longer. Um, oh, that I I can't believe anybody would give up after several weeks just because you didn't want to go to a My meeting.
0: grandmother then took my place and they used to come around and she loved chatting to them. Oh, Her grandmother was. and they were with studying us. with your grandmother. Yeah. See,
2: on the other side of that, I know exactly what was being said uh, about you and the fact that your mother was happy with it. How old were you? Ten 10! maybe eleven I can't believe your mum was happy with that that they were because it is it is quite indoctrinating but well done you for uh for
0: for sidestepping that uh, <laughs> well I'm interested in because you know when you talked about going oh, out doing all the knocking, there were quite there were some celebrities weren't they who were growing up Jehovah's as witnesses Peter Andre one of them yes
2: yes Peter Andre was on the Gold Coast in Australia at the same time as around the same time as me he was Uh, (laughs) Uh, he used to do uh, a Michael Jackson impersonation at parties where he'd dance like Michael Jackson who was also a famous Jehovah's Witness years later when I was in a congregation in central London Michael Jackson came to the meeting one week turned up really yeah and uh, after the meeting asked to go to the doors and actually looking back I don't know why they would have let him go to the doors because he he wasn't baptised but anyway I think he was just so famous So they let him go to the doors because you have to get territory. You can't just knock on any door. You've got to get assigned doors to knock on. And normally you do a minimum of an hour, but you'd usually do the morning. You do three hours. Michael Jackson got in his limo with his security guys, got out at the first door, went up to the door with the security guards behind him, (laughs) uh, knocked on the door. Presumably a rather strange moment for that householder. Uh, sort of why is Michael Jackson two bodyguards here with a Watchtower? Anyway, he got back into the limo, drove to the next door, to the next door, got out, same deal, got back in the car, drove away. We called him Two Doors Jackson. That, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> two doors. Yeah. And just
0: remind us, the Watchtower Society is the kind of um, sort of head office, the publishing yeah, center of it's the Jehovah's publishing Witnesses.
2: publishing company. It's the company that really run the Jehovah's Witnesses called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. But those little plays that we were allowed to do were very important to me because that was my only performance opportunity, was that I was able to do these plays. Now, most people probably got assigned two little plays a year, and they were only a few minutes long. But I worked out that lots of women, sisters as we were called, uh, got nervous on the night that they were meant to do it because they didn't like public speaking, because most people don't. And so sometimes the brother in charge of the school would just have to sort of summarise what was meant to be said. So I went to that brother and said... Um, if anyone drops out, I'll be a permanent understudy. I'll just fill in (laughs) on the night. Just let me know as soon as you know, and I'll write something really quickly. And he said, oh, that's really helpful. Thank you very much. And so I got probably 10, 12 talks a year. My mission was always, uh, how many laughs could I get? How could I make this funny? It's
0: amazing that there's this hunger in you to perform, to do comedy, and you find what outlets you can within this sort of circumscribed... Oh yeah, world you're living but in. people
2: do. People find their ways, you know. And I and I remember thinking, how can I make this funny? How can
0: I make this funny? So can I and, ask then when and how did you come to leave? Because you're talking about you know uh, doing pioneering work in London. Uh, did you come to study o- Oxford before or after you? No, were... I wasn't allowed to go to university.
2: They're, they're a little bit laxer on that now, but they like people to do something vocational. But when you know, in 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 my day, it was completely, completely. Uh, band. So how did you um, come
0: to the, to make the break from the Jehovah's Witnesses and how difficult was it? I became a nanny
2: for a year and then I was living with people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'd been quite disillusioned by a lot of what I'd found. And I was also incredibly unstimulated and bored because I wanted to go to university and do lots of exciting things with my life. And I was knocking on It's really boring knocking on doors. I mean, it's so boring because most people aren't there or they're not interested also lots of politics I had a couple of really bad experiences and can you say what uh, one where i was accused of having an affair with a married elder i'd never even kissed anybody i mean i was just it was anybody much less a married elder you know things like that that you just you you know kangaroo courts and you know witch hunts um but
0: gilead really isn't
2: it oh so gilead and the fact that you're you're asked to report on other people.
0: When did you leave? I mean, was it like a hard break moment?
2: No, 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 no. I was living with this family I was nannying for and I just... I s- stopped going to so many meetings and I stopped knocking on doors altogether and I became what they would call weak in the truth. It wears off It's because it's, it's a form of brainwashing. If you go to every single meeting and you're reading every single day and you're only associating with witnesses... It is a high control group. And the reason I say it's a high control group is because you're not allowed friends outside of it and the punishment for leaving or even transgressing is shunning. And so everybody cuts you off. But like, is that what happened to you? Well, I faded out. So I, I'm, I'm sort of more on a soft shun. People, It's up to people's consciences if they shun me. But as soon as you're officially disfellowshipped, people have to treat you like you're not there, like they can't see you. Friends of mine would turn up in a cafe I was in and you would just have to pretend they weren't there it's horrible, horrible oh I used to have dreams that I would accidentally talk to someone disfellowshipped because if you talk to disfellowship people you'll get disfellowshipped
0: I really appreciate you talking so openly about this because I think it's so hard for many people listening to understand these really kind of controlled circumstances in which you grew up, and then to have stepped outside that world. You have quite unique insight into how women are controlled in kind of a patriarchal systems. You got into Oxford as a mature student in your early twenties. Mm. What was that like in comparison?
2: I mean, it was such a different world and uh, and such an exciting place full of opportunity. I remember going to Freshers' Fair every stand, you could do something different. You could, you know, it could be wine tasting or French conversation club or some ridiculous club where you just sort of went punting and ate cake or something. And I remember signing up for so many different things and I did a lot more exploration of myself and performance and that kind of thing than I worked. I didn't work very hard. Did you
0: sort of rediscover your performing voice in a way?
2: Oh, completely, yeah. I I was doing improvisation and... uh, that was really how I found, found myself. The thing is, I'd started going to improv classes when I was a Jehovah's Witness. Of course, the elders found out. I went off with three, when I was having a particularly bad time, with three other errant Jehovah's Witnesses. And we had a sort of, "whose eternal life is it anyway type group. Um, but we couldn't tell the improv group that we were Jehovah's Witnesses. Because we would be bringing reproach on Jehovah's name, because we shouldn't have been doing that, yeah. and also they would think we were weird. But they knew there was something odd about us because we, we were didn't... all so virginal, we and 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 odd. You're just odd because you can't do scenes about sex or death or anything like that. And so it, you 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 should say, "Well, well s- I'll sit this one out." <laughs> no, you but... just sort of gear, you just sort of steer it in a way that it was very innocent. Um, but when the elders found out that was the end of that, of course, um, we shouldn't have been doing that, first thing I did was sign up for improv classes. And improv saved my life because improv is the opposite of a high-control group. It's yes and, be in the moment, trust yourself. And I worked with uh, a teacher called Patty Stiles who'd worked with Keith Johnston. So Keith Johnston wrote a book, a very seminal book. Uh, he he worked at the Royal Court in RADA in the 50s then moved to Canada because of the censorship in this country, And this is something very interesting about finding your voice. And a lot of people won't know this, but young people won't know this anyway. But in the 50s and 60s in this country, everything had to be censored by the Lord Chamberlain. Chamberlain. But it meant it was illegal to perform improvisation in public. You couldn't because well, the Lord that's... Chamberlain couldn't censor it.
0: And I suppose that's why the establishment club that Peter Cook set up in the 60s was a private members club, or something.
2: Yes, absolutely, because you couldn't perform it in theatres and people had these loopholes like private members clubs and things. You had to submit all of your scripts to the Lord Chamberlain and the Lord Chamberlain would read Pennant and say, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't so say that.
0: this person um, wrote a
2: book or actually taught you? When I was a Jehovah's Witness, I read this book that was written by Keith Johnston. It was this absolutely seminal text that had all of this amazing stuff about how to wake your brain up and how to find your imagination. And the reason Keith went to Canada was because it was illegal to perform improvisation in public and he suggested to the Lord Chamberlain, well, why don't you send someone down and if there's anything we say that you don't like, you can ring a bell. (laughs) <laughs> which is sort of like an improvisation game, and they said no. So he moved to Canada, and he because he said the Russians would come over, like the sort of some kind of Moscow theatre group, and they would commiserate with us on how awful our censorship was. He said, which was so embarrassing because they were behind the Iron Curtain.
0: Yeah. So what effect this will have on you then finding your voice? Because I know you started playwriting, you're doing improv at mm. university. How are you thinking about using your voice and? Well, I think at first it, I didn't think about what I
2: wanted to say. It was completely about the mechanics of how I could release myself from the internal sensor in my brain. Because when you're a Jehovah's Witness, every single thing you think, you check in with yourself, that it's you clear it with your internal sensor. So it's like having a Lord Chamberlain in your brain. And so think about Gilead, think about The Handmaid's Tale. And I do not wish to compare, you know, Being in a high control group with being in a police state. But in terms of censoring what you say, those mechanisms are the same. And this is why we must be aware of resisting anything that looks like our human rights being taken away or diminished. Because the idea that you have to just check in constantly with what you say to make sure that it measures up to somebody else's ideal, and I'm not talking. About hate speech, anything that diminishes anyone else's humanity. But I had to check in absolutely everything I said and thought. You were checking your thoughts all the time. You were censoring your thoughts. So you
0: had took a while to un unlearn. And all
2: improvisation that. is I can't believe it. When I look back now and I think of I went from a high control group into an improv group, and it is it's it is the unlearning of that. And somebody in my improv group years later, because I never told anybody that I had been a Jehovah's Witness because I didn't want to be defined that way. I didn't want anyone to see me that way. But someone in my emperor group years later said, I always knew there was something odd about you. And she said, I thought you'd been sexually assaulted because she said the way that you interacted with men and the walls that you had up. She said, I thought you'd had something like that had happened to you looking back, it took a long time to get the walls down and to just dismantle all of this social conditioning.
0: Well, everything you've just been saying, you know, I I have to kind of go straight to the idea for your hit podcast, The Guilty Feminist, mm. um, dismantling controlling systems, you know, sort of stepping outside that kind of closed world to realise it's a artificial world and the real world is much bigger and much freer. How did you come up with the idea for your podcast and, and call it what you did? So 2012, 2013, it felt like this reignition
2: of feminism in, in the zeitgeist, in, in interact... I just felt like suddenly, instead of... Between 2012, I suppose, between 2012 and 2015, I felt a real shift in what people were talking about, Because when I went to Oxford, I was really surprised that there wasn't more feminism in daily conversation. Because I was desperate for feminism. I was always a feminist as a Jehovah's Witness. You weren't allowed to be, but I remember talking about the way women were treated in the Bible and having theories about why this could be and other women saying, oh, well, I don't feel oppressed and I don't need this kind of thing. And and it was very much verboten to talk like that. But occasionally I'd get so angry about the way women were treated and I would talk about it. So I was desperate for feminism. But when I got to Oxford, it was 97 to 2000, I was at Oxford. And it was really kind of, you know, it was girl power and Britpop pop type era. And it just wasn't something being talked about. And I remember trying to talk about it and other women saying, well, you look like you're trying to get an unfair advantage if you talk about feminism, because we have equality now. (laughs) Now, listen, I'm sure there were people at Oxford at that time, probably in quite serious feminist societies, but it wasn't in your daily life. It wasn't in the discussions we were having. It wasn't in the debates that were happening at the Oxford Union. It wasn't in the fabric. And it felt like in 2012, between 2012 and 2015, it started to bubble up. And I remember like Chimamanda... Did this amazing TED Talk? We should all be feminists. Bridget Christie won the Edinburgh Comedy Award for her show. A big for her. Fleabag was oh, Waller live Waller on bridge. stage. People want a bridge, and a Fleabag is a sort of more iconoclastic, a countercultural feminist mm-hmm. hero in a way. These things were bubbling up. And so, what and these, did you want to do
0: with your podcast?
2: Well, these conversations were being had, and I knew I wanted to be part of it. But I also felt like. I'm a feminist, but... Tell me about that, in fact. Um, So
0: this is the, the very famous opening lines by I guess. I'm a feminist, but... What's the rationale behind it? What are your favourite ones?
2: I felt like all the feminists I could see in public life were very strident and they're really certain. And I was having conversations with other women going, I secretly am not sure that I'm good enough. Like, I don't know that... They, they seem so sure. And I felt like I'm a feminist, but... Am I getting this right? And I remember Bridget Christie saying, you will never find your audience until you say what you really feel. And I thought, well, that's all right for you, Bridget, because what you really feel is so, so... She's so funny, Bridget, but she was so certain and, and uh, hilariously angry in her feminism. And I thought, what I want to say is I'm a feminist but but I don't know that anyone wants to hear that. Are they, am I going to get kicked out of the feminist club? And I was having lunch with a, a, another comedian called Sophie Hagen... And I told her some of my, my I'm a feminist, butts, my hypocrisies and insecurities. And Sophie said, Well, I have these two. Let's do a podcast. And I said, Okay, well, then there needs to be an audience because we're comedians and we need to do stand up comedy because we're women. We should be doing stand up comedy in front of an audience uh, and not just uh, just sort of having a chat in a studio. And I I wanted to make sure there was a really strong comedy front. Sophie said, Right, well, there should be a guest then and we should have a conversation as well and so forth and so on. And then December 2015th, we did the first episode. and it started with "I'm a feminist, Bart." And so we we confessed stuff. So I'm a feminist. This first one I confessed, I think ever, was "I'm a feminist, Bart." One time I went on a women's rights march, and I popped into a department store to use the loo. And when I was in there, I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And I thought, <laughs> "Oh my god, people get it." But people laughed. And yeah. of course, so many women have said to me since I have left a march because I just felt overwhelmed because I thought I can't do this anymore because my feet hurt because I was freezing and I I went to the pub with some friends or I I skipped out and I hoped no one would notice. But the thing is, you turned up and you were counted and you tried. And, you know, I found the next time I went on a march, I marched for longer. And Sophie, about nine months later, wanted to go on and do other things. But I wanted to keep doing it because I felt like, oh, I found my home now. I then found that I had this open co-host chair. And then there was that opportunity for diversity.
0: Yeah, tell me how you've done that because you, you're quite playful with how you use that space.
2: Yeah, well, I think, yeah, first, it's a real instinct to think, all right, well, the podcast is free. If you don't like it, don't listen to it. But really quickly, I checked myself from having that attitude because I thought, I don't like it when men tell me, oh, well, it's fine, you can come into this space if you want and it's just your problem. Or when men don't listen... And they deny your experience. It's very annoying. And I thought, well, then I have to be the same about that. It's no good saying, well, the podcast is free. What's the point of a feminist podcast if it is not going to make room and give voice to a cross-section of women who have different life experiences and more marginalised experiences than mine? There is absolutely no point to it.
0: So give us examples of the kind of people you've been particularly pleased to have on then.
2: So I'll often have Susan Wakoma who really only does stand-up comedy on the Guilty Feminist. Yeah, she's
0: she's, um, she's been in the Year of the Rabbit, hasn't she? The, that's
2: right. Yeah, she's an actress, but Matt she's a kind of writer, a brilliant writer. And she was raised by Nigerian parents. She's Nigerian-British. And so her experiences are so different. I remember the first time she co-hosted, we were talking about makeup. And of course, three white women talking about makeup is very, very different than hearing from someone like Susan McComa, who's a dark-skinned black woman. So she told this incredible story about her first TV job out of drama school was a studio sitcom, so that it's you know, the audience is there and you're lit, you know, directly in front of the audience. And she arrived, you know, for the first recording, very excited, and everyone else was bonding and running their lines, and she got taken off by the producer down a long corridor into a room and sat down. She thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be fired. And they said, look, we're really sorry, but there's white people in this show and there's a mixed race person and that makes you very difficult to light. Um, So we're going to have to paint you a lighter shade of black. Oh my God. Yeah. And she, because she said she was so young, she went to drama school straight from school. So she was really young and it was her first telly job. So she didn't have the confidence to say, you can't do that. You need to tell the lighting people to do their job and find a way to light me. So she said when everyone else was bonding, she was sitting there having what she called a reverse minstrel done to her, being painted, meticulously painted a light shade of black. And she the makeup artist was brilliant, was saying, honestly you won't look less black on the screen, it's just for the lighting and blah blah blah. But she was being painted lighter, a light shade mm-hmm. of Red. She'll never allow that now. But her telling that story, and of course she told it in such a wonderfully funny way as well, I just thought, you know, <sighs> We can learn so much about it, other experiences, and it,
0: crucially, that it's something which, if you just say it's about makeup, at first would sound trivial. But of course, it isn't. It's absolutely about how the fabric, the warp of everyday life, sort of normalizes this yes. this treatment of women of colour, or women, or people with uh, with a disability. Exactly.
2: And then, you know, I'll have Rosie Jones on, who has cerebral palsy and is gay. And I know for well when Susan McComb listens to Rosie, that she will learn things. About that experience of being disabled and queer in a world that is not shaped for you—that you have to constantly make your own shape—and Rosie is so brilliantly hysterically funny about these things. Everybody learns from everybody else's experience. It's so much more fascinating than getting someone on saying, "Tell me about mental
0: health" or yeah. "Tell me about disability." And crucially, it sounds fun. comedy and improv is absolutely in your soul. And I know you you run your own improv company, don't you, with your husband, The Spontaneity Shop. But I'm, I'm fascinated by that relationship between comedy and the fact that there is this really practical kind of campaigning side of you. Yes, I think comedy is
2: a very underrated tool for social change. So I had somebody write in not long ago and he said, I'm just writing you this email to let you know that my name is Lawrence. He basically said, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. And he said... I started listening to your podcast, The Guilty Feminist, because I hated feminists, and I thought, I need to know what the enemy's up to. (laughs) And he said, but 18 months later, you've worn me down. 18 months later? I was like,
0: and I was that fascinated. She Wasn't that like like the Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in reverse?
2: It really is. It really is. I mean, we are relentless. Uh, And I I said, that's what you learn. You learn resilience as a Jehovah's Witness. He said, I've realised you're right. I do other everyone that isn't a white, straight cis non-disabled person. And I thought, oh, my God, he's, he's really, like, talking about othering, please, using the word using the cis. I was like, wow, this man is really <laughs> He said, what you say still sometimes annoys me, but please keep saying it because it's working. And I thought, this is <laughs> fascinating. So I wrote back to him and said, what made you listen for 18 months? And he said, it was funny. The jokes were really good. And he said, sometimes the jokes were about me, but they were really funny. And the thing is with jokes is they make the armour come off When we all laugh about something, it's the most absolutely harmless thing. So, like, for example, Michael McIntyre talking about putting up a Christmas tree. When a stadium full of people laugh at that, what we acknowledge is we all understand that experience, we all relate to it, that putting up a Christmas tree and putting up the Christmas lights should be easy, but, of course, it isn't and you get tangled in the lights, whatever. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, as many people in the stadium won't, you still laugh at it because you have an understanding about trying to do something like that, and so nobody has to put their hand up and go, "Yes, I am quite incompetent about putting up, you know, flat pack furniture or Christmas trees." It's it's true. I'm not very good at it. Everyone can admit it at once because the laughter says we all feel this. So now you take that out of Christmas trees and flat pack furniture, and you start to talk about something like privilege. If you are white doors will open for you that may be closed to people of colour. If you are in a wheelchair, you will not be able to get to the meeting on the fifth floor without Mm -hmm. lift. We can almost all understand having some kind of privilege. When everybody laughs because the joke about the way we feel entitled to our privileges, because we're just used to having them, nobody has to stand up and go, yes, I'm a really privileged person and I don't always understand that and I sometimes ignorant of other people kind of marginalisation, those
0: boundaries doesn't it what... it dilutes
2: it it dilutes it and when we can all go okay well if we all have that then we can all just look at it and so so laughter is a such an underrated tool
0: what do you want to do with it next because it feels like you're a woman with a lot of ambition a lot of plans and coming to london you know which has obviously always been your home even before you were here it's kind of your base isn't it yes so, or base camp what next so I had somebody on the podcast
2: called Idal Esa who used to run Amnesty International in Turkey. She talked about how Turkey went from being a democracy to being a police state. I mean, there are countries in, a, in Europe now where people are looking at jail time for rescuing refugees from the ocean. And that sounds to me a lot like 1930s Germany. And it's, it's really scary. So I said to Idel, what do we have to do to avoid our country becoming something akin to a fascist state or whatever the next version of fascism is going to be. And she said, you need three things. To resist? She said, because you think, well, what does going on a march really do? But she said, the government's always looking outside to see how many people would revolt if we brought in these extra measures, because they can't put everyone in prison. They can't. But she said, then you have to be resilient, you have to keep doing it, because if there's 20,000 people at the first march and 5,000 people at the third march, they see that you will dwindle. But thirdly, she said, the thing that the guilty feminist has is joy, and she said that's what a lot of movements miss out on. So I thought, right, what we need to do is start something called the Joyful Resistance. So Amnesty have given us their space on the last weekend of January 24th and 25th of January, and we're going to start coming up with ideas for individuals and small groups who meet that weekend to come up with projects that, through story, through comedy, through music, start to fight othering because story is the only thing that can fight othering. Story is the thing that says, hey, this person is a person. So The Joyful Resistance is about engaging people in the middle who see themselves as apolitical, who think, oh, well, that's not for me, I'm not a political person, I don't really know about that, because we need enough people who would come out into the street and say, no, we don't want loads of people in our area taken away. Not long ago in France, there was the police came to take these two young refugee lads away, and all of these people in this French village came out and stood around them and said, They're our sons now. You take them, you take us. And the police went, All right, then keep them. And we need enough people. I have a Syrian refugee living in my spare room called Steve Ali, who is like my family. Now he's lived with us for two years, and it's been a really incredible, intense, joyful, wonderful two years. If Someone came to try and take Steve away. I would would go out, but would anyone else in my street? Would they just say that's none of my business? I don't know. That's what I'm interested in now. Holding hands with these other people who are creating these joyful movements, bringing us all together and saying, let's make the world we wish to live in. I'm no interest now in feminism that just points and goes, we don't want that. Okay, let's not just bring hammers to knock the patriarchy down. Let's bring bricks to build the world we do want to live in. Let's become the architects.
0: Deborah Francis-White, thank you so much. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello again, it's Farah Jasat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout-out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium, hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today.